And I do hope, actually, Michelle passes that on, <laughs> just to make it more fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. By the way, thank you. I think the body ought to thank Josiah and Mickey also for choosing those excellent songs. They fit the topic of human depravity to a T. <laughs> Gary asked me, actually, to um, uh, do just a short little historical background on the doctrines of grace so I can prepare and other speakers who will follow me when they're doing their topics of the doctrines of grace they don't have to do what I'm doing right now all over again mm -hmm. you're welcome Pat so um, I'm not a historian uh, I did just a little research and the ultimate um direction that I'm heading is to get to the word tulip. So today's sermon begins a series on what is called in Reformed circles. By the way, if you did not know that, this is a Reformed church. Not everybody is, may not be certain of that, or I should say understand that. Uh, but uh, this series is on the doctrines of grace, sometimes referred to as Calvinism. Now that in the 21st century, even in the 20th century, is kind of a word you didn't want to say in crowds of people. It's a little bit better now. There is a Reformation revival going on within America. It has been going on since J.I. Packer's book on the sovereignty of God and evangelism and R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, and I would also suggest many of the books that John MacArthur wrote. They will, in fact, I'm making that statement based on what John MacArthur even said publicly in the past year or so about this revival of the Reformed faith. So the doctrines of grace are associated to John Calvin, but it is not specifically just Calvin's doctrine. Even there's argument made from theologians that John Calvin may have even not fully subscribe to limited atonement. There's a, a debate in there. On the other hand, he's the systematizer, as actually Brother Pat had mentioned very clearly. He is the one, if you go to college and you go to seminary, you will learn about systematic theology. Basically, the doctrines of grace are five understandings, doctrinal categories that are systematized or looked at in a systematized way in order to understand how they all hook together with one another. Therefore, the origins of the five doctrines are not limited to John Calvin, but have been debated and also taught since the beginning of the church. You can go back all the way through to Augustine, to the apostles, to the early church fathers, and the rest. In 1618 and 1619, uh, five these five doctrines of grace were actually canonized in the Synod of Dort. It was actually a reaction to 45 or 46 pastors in the Netherlands that literally followed uh, James Arminius, who they actually ended up bringing about a statement of faith, and that was around 1610. So around eight to nine years later, they actually, uh, the Reformed Church, uh, coming through Zwingli and Calvin and Martin Luther and others uh, at the Synod of Dort, the tulip was canonized. What is the tulip? The tulip is as follows. It's an acronym 
hopefully, um, I used to call always call it an, an acronym, and I don't think that's right. But the tulip is as follows. It's the word tulip, and each, for each letter actually refers to the subject matter of the doctrines that's being involved. That is T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. Now, I believe Pat might have mentioned six studies following this. I'm going to bring it up just very shortly within the sermon, but not really talk about it much. But uh, Gary, on the sixth Sunday, is going to talk about why do we evangelize. Because that is the ultimate issue. If God is sovereign in salvation and you are dead in trespassing your sins while an unbeliever, then why preach the gospel to dead people? But that is still yet to come. My charge today then is to teach you the doctrines of grace. I will have to talk about the other doctrines just a little bit. But the first doctrine, and by the way, I am bringing the bad news today. There is always bad news to the good news of the gospel, right? Always bad news. And I'm not going to hold barrel. If I had a double-barrel shotgun, both sides of the barrel are loaded today. If you feel a little depressed by the middle of the sermon or even by the end of the sermon, make sure that what I'm saying is biblically true. But I will not leave you without hope in relationship to the power of the gospel of Christ and the sovereignty of God. So let's read our text. Romans 3, we're going to start at verse 9. I'm reading from the NIV. Yes, I got rid of that old, worn-out, rained-upon Bible that you keep telling me get rid of. Although I would never actually say get rid of it. It is still stored. I couldn't dare get rid of an old Bible, but you know what I mean. All right, starting at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is none, no one who understands, no one who even seeks God. I have turned away, they have, or all have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by the observing of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscience of sin. Now, a righteousness of God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in the forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice as the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The Roman church, the Roman church is filled with Jews and Gentiles, but more Gentiles. There are disagreements within the church that will follow the Apostle Paul for all of his letters almost. The book of Philippians is basically the most positive orientated letter that he sends. If you ask somebody, what was Rome like in the first century? Some, and this is a quote, described it as a glorious achievement of mankind. Others have said, quote, it's the sewer of the universe. The sewer of the universe. What one man sees, another one may even hate. What seems to appear as clean and white, even as Jesus said, you are whitewashed tombs filled with med dead men bones. The outside may be clean, but the inside is corrupt when you consider man's nature and his depravity. And we will discuss what depravity means in a short distance. Paul writes from Corinth, and he's writing. He has a great desire to come to Rome, but he has to bring the collection of the saints to Jerusalem. And sadly, the story goes, Paul eventually gets to Rome in chains. His appeal is for unity within the body. And the only way that you can have unity in any church, and this holds true to this church in the 21st century, is found in Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. As much as we are people saved by grace, we have to live by faith in amongst one another here. Faith in the same person, the same God, the same message. Paul's rallying cry, actually, uh, if I were to summarize one of his rallying cries anyways, was that all of us are called to live worthy according to the gospel. Both Jew and Gentile in a Roman church must examine themselves just as much as you and I while they live in a city, and yes, in America, and I find this in Romans one twenty nine filled with every kind of depravity. That word is even used in the book of Romans. So what is human depravity? I call it human depravity because we are humans. But the tulip directs me to call it total depravity. Emphasizing the total, emphasizing human, I think is a good thing. I will mix-mash those two terms throughout the sermon. But what is total depravity? 
I just took it out of the theological dictionary to get it succinct, quote, that sinfulness, total depravity, is that sinfulness which pervades all areas of life, the totality of human existence. In other words, all the days of your life, if you never are found by Christ, and I word that specifically because it's only by the grace of God do you come to Christ, in all of your human existence you will be considered by the scriptures as dead in trespasses and sins. Paul makes a big theological, almost dissertation in relationship to the book of Romans, how he describes man's sinfulness in the first three chapters. He will even add to that list, even all the way through chapter 7, about man's depravity. Suffice it to say that Paul has to, in order for his uh, his body, or I should say his uh, letter to reach the people in the Church of Rome to give them any type of encouragement is that with depravity could come depression, but with the knowledge of God's grace comes exaltation, thank, thank, uh, thanksgiving, and also worship, right? Connected to the doctrine of total depravity is total inability, Quote, because of our sinful depravity, humans are not able to perform any action that will lead to their salvation. Any action. Now that already strikes at the heart of human will. It already starts the, the discussions of you know, um, philosophy about the, the sentient man and the will of man and could God ever be called just if man is uh, unable to be able to come to, to Christ through the gospel, right? Those words are already maybe even in some of your minds today. What's important for us to understand that there are will-nots and can-nots throughout the scripture, the New Testament in particular. For instance, in John 6, no one can come unto the Father unless uh, the Father uh, draws you through Christ. But you cannot come to him John says in John 6, you cannot come to him. In Romans 8, I'll read the uh, New American Standard. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, nor is it even able to do those. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. Jesus also said, he who is of God, hears the words of God. For this reason, speaking to the Pharisees, you cannot hear me, for you're not of God. Well, he's not talking about physical hearing there, is he? He's talking about spiritual hearing. You cannot hear God in the message of the gospel. Why? Because you are spiritually dead. You are in nature depraved. The reason why we're depraved is that through one man sin entered the world and through sin all men died. Paul says that in Romans 5. All men died. In one sense, if we go the way of the Arminian, which is the other uh, biblical worldview that says that there's a little power and strength still left within man, where total depravity says you have no power in of yourself, you have no strength within yourself, in fact, you have no will. And by the way, I'm just repeating what Paul said here, and we're going to go through that a little bit. Then we actually denigrate, in my opinion, God himself. 
his power to save, his love. It almost shows that God is dependent upon man, which God is never dependent upon man. You will, when you are first saved, you will have two choices. I actually uh, knew a coffee shop owner. I would go up there quite often, and I started, I, well, actually, I offered uh, the book by A.W. Pink to um, uh, a woman that actually just gave a profession of faith, and she turns to me, the owner of the coffee shop, and she says, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm preaching the gospel to a newly saved soul. He goes, well, why are you doing that? And I said, because she's going to run into an awful lot of people that's going to tell her differently over her life. And by the way, you're not going to be her only teacher for the rest of her life. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? So you're going to have choices when you are first saved. Some of you newbies out there who just had some baptisms. You will either have to choose whether man is sick in nature, that he still has that power and that capacity and that will to be able to respond, or man will either be considered as dead. And I say that because I'm actually using the biblical word that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Ephesians when he writes the Ephesians, and he says, though you are dead in trespasses and sins, he has made you alive. Well, if dead doesn't mean dead, guess what? Alive doesn't really make or mean alive as much. So if you're only partially dead, then your salvation is a little partial. Maybe you could lose your salvation, right? That's some of the assumptions by the other group of people called Arminians that believe this, that believe that man's nature isn't fully corrupted even Jesus, you know that beautiful text in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall have life everlasting. A universal call of the gospel. But just a few verses down, Jesus says, light has come in the world and men prefer darkness over the light. You see, understanding total depravity really enlightens the believer to understand that before you were saved, you preferred sin all the time. And even even when you did some good things, you still loved sin than you loved God, right? You never loved God to the fullest. That's why the command is to believers who only have the capacity, and even still we still fall short, and that is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. Well, how can we do that? Well, you certainly can't do it if you're an unbeliever. But as a believer, at least God gives us the tools to love him more and more and more. So this is the choice. The choice you make, though, and this is the important thing. I'll bring it up later in the sermon. The choice you make to believe whether man is dead or sick will affect the way which you define the grace of God. What is your definition? How would you define God's grace? If someone asked you on a street, maybe you're going for lunch after service today, and someone saw you at church, they're a visitor here, and they say, what is the grace of God? Would you tell them that they're actually pretty good people? But actually they just need to. Because, by the way, God is a wonderful plan for your life. As if somehow that any man could follow through on the plan when he's depraved. Right? 
Practically speaking, Christians, many Christians, have a hard time with this doctrine. They are, um, I'm not saying in parallel with unbelievers, but look at what the unbeliever, I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verse 7, 8 again, but in the NIV. This is what the, you could say, the position of the unbeliever is in. Quote, and Paul says this, of course, the unbeliever lives according to the sinful nature having their minds set on what the nature desires. And the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not uh, submit to God, uh, God's law, nor can it do so. In one sense, you can say, even before we were saved, we were in happy, sinful bliss, enjoying our sin, because our nature was corrupt. Paul says to the Ephesians that, before we were saved, we were walking in the futility of our mind. I don't know how much more descriptive it can be. You need your mind to believe, right? If you're walking in the futility of your mind, then therefore you can't believe. But for Christians, and the reason why I'm giving this contrast, sometimes Christians want to believe, kind of like grading on a curve, right? Or the positive confession movement of our day. We want to think good of people, right? We want to think good of people. I don't want to think that their, you know, that their lips have the poison of snakes on them, as Paul says, right? We just don't want to go in that direction. I want to get along with my neighbor, right? When I preach the gospel, I want to talk about the, the easy things to preach about. I don't want to tell them that their throats are graves, Right? Have anybody, has anybody here actually said your throat is a grave to an unbeliever? Uh, any hands? I don't see any. Uh, but the Apostle Paul didn't shy, did he? He didn't shy at all. But for the unbeliever sometimes, and actually John MacArthur made this statement just recently um, when I was listening to a question and answer session. He talked about the sentimental gospel. And I had never seen it. I always called it sentimentalism, but the sentimental gospel basically is sentimentalism, the philosophy of only talking about the good things about the gospel and about Christ. Why would you want to offend anybody, right? I mean, it's not even natural to man because we're image bearers, but that doesn't mean we're being faithful, right? Not at all. So the Christian sometimes responds emotionally to texts like this, to the whole doctrines, may even be some of the reasons why people choose Arminian churches over Calvinistic churches. You do know, by the way, Calvinistic or Reformed churches are not as filled nor as numerous in America as Arminian churches, by far. You are here because you love the truth. And I'm not saying they don't believe in truth. I'm just saying... This is the bare-bones truth about total depravity, about who you were before you were saved, and also how you preach the gospel. So sometimes we categorize people, right? I mean, let's face it. If you did a poll, not only in this church, but say you had a gathering of unbelievers, and you polled them and said, now, what is total depravity, and who in this world in history would you describe as depraved, Right? That their, that their whole self is depraved, even their human person. 
is depraved because their nature is corrupt. Well, they might say, well, Adolf Hitler is certainly one I could consider and agree with most people that uh, he was a depraved man, right? He's a psychotic, right? At the end of the day, killing six million Jews, also many others other than that. I mean, in the final solution, he got together with his generals, and they literally tried to, uh, indust- in an industrial way, how to kill and also cremate bodies. That's depraved. Wouldn't get much argument from that, would you, in culture today? How about Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Eh, some of you younger people might not know it. But Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer, and he ate his victims. And we even make movies about that, right? In The Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins plays the role of the, of the serial killer, and he says to Jodie Foster, I ate some fava beans and some liver while I was having a Chianti. Now, no one would ever disagree. Even Hollywood even has a criteria, a scale that says there are some people more evil than other people, right? But would you consider yourself, before you were saved, even if you did great good works, on the outside you look pretty, pretty clean, but God still considered you depraved, an enemy of God, Paul even says in the book of Romans? Even in this church, we have had people surprised when we've read and taught on the total depravity. I remember this happened down on Hamilton Street way long ago, probably over 30 years ago now, or 35 years. And uh, I saw the reaction of one person when I quoted the text that you are enemies of God, and it stunned her, stunned her. It is not popular, you could say. But question is here, would you call your neighbor depraved? Totally. Their entire human existence in sin and over and under the power of sin. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. You know, the person, your neighbor that watches your cats when you go on vacation, and maybe you go on vacations with one another, that person... Not Jeffrey Dahmer, not Adolf Hitler, but an average good Joe, right? One thing about studying the doctrine of total depravity is to find out I wasn't as good as I thought I was when I was first saved. Although sometimes pride stays with us as Christians, I still remember even my, in my own heart, I literally said this to another Christian when I went to the congregation of church down in Chaplin, Connecticut. It ended up being a 4C church. I literally said, quote, I wonder what God saw in me. Nothing. Right? Nothing. By the way, that does not mean also you're an image bearer. You are one who's supposed to manifest the glory of God. It doesn't mean that men and women do not do some good deeds. But there is a difference right here and now. It's not because you're not totally depraved, but it's because you're an image bearer, man still does some good works. That's the distinction you must make. All of humanity is depraved, and even when they do that, some good things, God 
is the one who we must agree with. There's a great phrase. It was probably quite a long time ago now. But when you get saved, you must agree with God against yourself. You must agree with God against yourself. That's how people get saved. Because now they're agreeing with God and their ears are attuned to the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes within them. And in great power, he revives them. He resurrects them. He creates them in a new creation. He causes them to be born again. The inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 6-5. And then God sent a great flood and destroyed all of humanity. Solomon says the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. Madness is in their heart while they are in the flesh. And then they go to the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but ask your neighbor if he thinks he's mad. What is his answer? Of course not, you nutcase. Right? You're one of those Christian Jesus freaks, as my brother called me 40 years ago. At my brother's funeral that I preached last September, my first cousin came up to me and he said, uh, you know, my father-in-law, he married an Indian woman. My father-in-law is the spiritual head. So where do you go with that one, right? At the funeral, you preach the gospel. Your cousin comes up to you. You haven't seen him in years. And now you want to preach the gospel to him again when he's asking you a personal question. Well, the context was about human nature. I said, you know, there was one time I gave him this illustration. I said, you know, when Barack Obama, his aides actually told him, don't you dare sing Amazing Grace in that church. Now, I don't remember if while he was president or he was politicking for his first term, but he sang it. And I said to my first cousin, I said, do you really believe that Barack Obama believed that he was a wretch? Right? Did you believe that you were really a wretch in the presence of a thrice holy God? Did you? No, it took a special revelation of the Spirit of God. It took the grace and the power of God, of the Trinitarian persons, to reveal to you a dead person who cannot revive himself to be saved. Are you depressed yet? There is good news coming. Paul gives it to us. By the way, (laughs) if you're watching the clock, guess what? I haven't even gotten to the first verse. (laughs) Now, let me just give you a quick little overview. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul begins his dissertation... Uh, just after he gave his greetings to the to the Romans in the Christian church in Rome. And he says, and by the way, he brings up the topic of the Gentiles first. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. So he levers the gavel. He's acting as a, a prosecutor here in Romans chapter 3. It literally says, we have already made the charge. You're guilty. You're guilty, world. You're guilty. And so as a prosecutor in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, he levels the charge, and by the way, the justifiable charge, that all men are worthy of God's wrath. Do you know what he does next? Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, 
specifically referring to the Jews in 2.17, he literally uses the word wrath three times for the Jew. I found that interesting. That even the Jew, and that's the premise of his beginning here in chapter 3, verse 9. And we're going to reread that verse. What shall we conclude then? We are all, are we any of us any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin as it is written. What Paul's going to do is he's going to give three categories of man's depravity and the ultimate accountability to it. Or actually two categories of depravity the way we become depraved, better way to phrase it, and then the accountability. In other words, he will say in verse 9, all are under sin. In 10 through through 18, verses 10 through 18, he will say all are dominated by their sin. And lastly, in verses 19, 20, and verse 23, he's going to say all men are accountable for their sin. Do you see that in your text? It would be good to write that down if you can. But he says, are we any better than they? He's making an argument now to the Jews. See, the Jews, and Paul just before this said, I know your privilege. You've got the covenants and the promises. You've been given the special revelation of the word of God. The Jews even accepted the fact that they may even have been better than they. That's why I like John Calvin's uh, phrase here. He actually says a better translation. Instead of saying... Are we better than they? Paul is saying, are we any worse than they? See, when you use the word better, it's kind of like the the Pharisee and the tax gatherer in the temple, right? I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. So you can put yourself in a gradated scale so you can still, well, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as him, right? But Calvin said, no, 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 no. Are you any, or are we? And that's the beauty. Paul says, <laughs> I'm going to include myself in this myself when I was an unbeliever too. Are we any better than they or any worse than they? That's a category of uh, value. No, you're not, right? You're really not any worse than them and any better than them. You're all the same. It's the reason why he says in verse 9, he says... That the Jews and the Gentiles alike are under sin. And that's our first category, right? You are, I should say, the world is depraved because all are under sin. What does that mean, to be under something? Well, the theological dictionary says it is an inferiority and a condition. So what's the power base here in this text, being under sin? Sin has all the power over you when you're unsaved. Sin makes you inferior to it. Jesus said in John 8, he says, everyone who sins is the slave of sin. What is a slave? Has no power. His master has power on him. Who's the master? Sin. Sin's the master. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law, we they were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit of death. 
It's almost like a disease, but it's not. I know the Bible uses certain words as metaphor to describe sin. Wounded is one of them. But you're more than wounded. You're wounded with a fatal wound, and the ultimate end of your life is death. That's the... I mean, no wonder... No wonder we're living in a world where people are trying to sedate themselves. No wonder we're living in a world where people want to sedate themselves to the reality of death, right? Death will depress anybody. And if you're unsaved, you have no hope. So hopeless people do what? Crazy things like today. To be under sin is to be godless, like a beast who acts according to the instinct of sin, satisfying one's passions without restraint. So you're a creature of your passions, your emotions, and therefore you will do anything because all you want to do is make yourself happy because you're not happy because the end of your life is death. Right? That's hopelessness. People commit suicide because of hopelessness. The gospel is the only thing that brings hope into this dark world. Do I have an amen with that? Amen. Now in verses 10 through 18, Paul says that all are dominated by sin. He says, as it is written. So what is he doing when he's saying that? He takes four verses uh, from four different Psalms. He also takes one verse from the book of Isaiah. And he says, as it is written... By the way, as a prosecutor, that's his evidence. I'm going back into the Old Testament. I'm going to prove to you that man is totally depraved. His conclusion is stunning. But let's go through the depravity part. He does, and basically his purpose here is to prove that sin pervades all areas of human life. The definition of total depravity. He uses the mind first, but he doesn't actually quote the word. But the mind obviously is in the text. Look at verses 11 and verse 17. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Verse 17. And the way of peace they do not know. You need a mind to understand, right? You need a mind to understand the difference between war and peace. And therefore, the mind is corrupt. The mind is corrupt. I got to see where I am now. All right, you're dominated by sin. There we go. Notice what he says here. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, and the eyes. Now, he could have used more body parts, but I think he got his point across. Wouldn't you agree? Right? I mean, how many more body parts do you want, Paul, to where we could say, by faith, I believe what Paul is saying? At the end of the day, it comes down to just taking God's word at face value from what the Scripture says. And at face value, we realize that we were really depraved, had no hope in life, that sin pervaded all areas of our life when we read this list that Paul is giving us. The throat, the tongues, the lips, the mouth, the feet and the eyes. But here's the hard one. Look at verse 12. All have turned away. They have become together worthless. 
That's hard. Right? I mean, it's hard that God would say to his humanity. It's almost like what God said to Moses in Genesis 6. Right? Their thoughts are only sinful continually. And then he destroys the earth. Man is worthless to God. Now, we gotta, you have to parse that a little bit. What does worthless mean? First and foremost, worthless means to render useless. That is, God's creatures are now useless for God using them. Lo and behold, Paul picks up on that in 1 Timothy. And he says, the Christian who is like gold and silver are useful to the master. You see, you went from once being in dead and trespasses and sins, and then he brought light into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming word of God, and he made you useful to the master. Can you say amen to that? You are useful to the master. Even when you sin, oh my goodness. In in, uh, uh, Psalm 51, David says, I know he will use me again. I don't want you to impose total depravity upon yourself as a believer here today. If you sin, it's not that you're not redeemed. You are redeemed. And also you must believe with David that even if I sin grievously, and we know how grievous David sinned, that God will use you again. And that's the wonderful grace of God. Because he deals with us as sinners saved by grace. We have his righteousness. We will never be depraved again the day of our salvation. Therefore, God's characterization of us still offends the Jews and the Gentiles of the first century and still offends everyone today. It is offensive to tell people that they are useless. When man compares himself by himself and measures himself by himself, he lacks understanding. That's one reason why men won't believe God's word against himself. Lastly, verses 19 20 and 23. All men, all Jews and Gentiles, Paul is saying to the Roman church, are accountable for their sin. By the way, no one will ever claim that God is unjust. Let every man become a liar that God may remain true. He just said this before verse 9. Let every man become a liar so God can be true because he is true. The only thing that you actually own in this life, John Reisinger says, is your sin. And if you're an unbeliever, you carry that sin with you to, to uh, the throne of a God, throne room of God, and you will be judged for it. For the Christian, you carry with you the works of God in you through Christ. You don't carry your sin because it's already atoned for. Since all areas of your life are affected, God has taken over for you the power of sin over you and the domination of sin that used to be dominating you in your life before you were saved. You followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You did that, and I did that. In Romans 3.20, he says, there is, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. 
So therefore, guess what happens? People say, that's unfair. How could God tell us to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to the unsaved, teaching them to be disciples, when they can't, by their own, because of their corrupted natures, fully depraved, believe? Well, it's another category to discuss why that is so, but succinctly, let me just tell you what Paul says. He says, you and I, when we evangelize, are the fragrance of Christ unto God, to some a life unto life, and to others death unto death. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you know that when you preach the gospel to dead people, some remain dead? When you preach the gospel, you literally are praying, God save some. God save some. I know this is bad news for your family members. Maybe your brother sister. My, bro- my brother died last year. My mom and dad did not know Christ. Maybe your neighbor, a friend, a co-worker at work. All will be accountable for their sin. Even some reach judgment now, the Bible says. And yet, God is gracious, is he not? There is a conjunction. We begin the good news. I want you to look what he says. Look at verse 19. Actually, in NIV, it doesn't. I'm sorry, in verse 21, it does say it. I switched Bibles, I told you. I went from the NAS to the NIV, so here we go. In verse 21, he says, But now a righteousness of God apart from the law has been made known. By the way, without even saying his name, he's referring to Jesus. A righteousness of God apart from the law, because the law condemns all men. So therefore, all men upon this earth are guilty. Paul's already proven that. So who is the one who's not that can save me? The one that comes from heaven, the incarnated Son of God. You see the beauty of the Godhead determining determining in eternity past to save his elect? Because you see, if he did not save his elect, no one would have been saved. Because there's no one who had the power to save himself. So this this conjunction is good news, but now. And really, it's rhetorical. If anyone cannot and is not righteous enough to satisfy God's wrath, then who is? It's Christ. God has provided, literally, a righteousness that you do not possess. And he has provided it through the atonement. You have what theologians call a foreign righteousness within you. You never had it. That's why uh, an understanding of the nature of man, thinking that there's a remnant of goodness still within him and power, does not agree with the atonement. It does not agree with it. You need Christ and him alone. And he, and and I should say, you need the righteousness of Christ. And that's the only way that you are pleasing and can stand in the presence of a holy God. So let's read verse 24 and 26 to finish up. Sort of. 24. And are justified. 
Well, let's read back to this. There is no difference, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because of his forbearance. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it in demonstration of his justice at the present time so as to be both just and the justifier. You know, R.C. Sproul said, because this big argument about, oh, you've got to have a little remnant of goodness in man because God, ha- God, God can- cannot hold man accountable unless he has a little goodness that rejects God. You know, R.C. Sproul says, I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, you don't need a free will to be judged. You just need to be a sinner. Just a sinner. Born in Adam, God could have judged us all right immediately out of the birth canal. (laughs) And what happened? According to Paul, he literally left sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's you and I. That's every person in this world who deserved to be judged immediately. God paused in redemptive history to save his people. Thank God for the pause, right? Thank God for the pause. So we do see that God has provided a faith that you and I did not have. God has provided a substitute we could not be ourselves. He's provided atonement that you and I thought we didn't need. He's provided grace that you did not deserve. It's called justification. He's provided his son for you. Notice that God's grace is defined through the son's mercy upon a world who is powerless to respond to the gospel. Powerless, worthless, useless, and God yet still loved us. If you want to know about the other four doctrines of grace that are coming up in the tulip, you need to know about total depravity. Because grace in the light of human deadness and a nature that couldn't respond, God is elevated to a place of glory by his free grace to exercise his grace upon whoever he wills. Human depravity helps us see ourselves as fallen creatures in the rebellion against the creator. Human depravity links us to a more accurate understanding of ourselves and our origin and the understanding of God and his transcendence and his otherness to why, why we will worship him and learn of him forever did he send his only begotten son whom he loved to suffer the torture of the cross. Literally, when you read Paul's epistles, he basically wants you and I to understand this one phrase he gives to the Corinthians. And such were some of you. You were that way. And you're redeemed. God has atoned for your sin. And he's given you, and this is the last point to be made, he's given you a reason for the newness of life to live to the glory of God. And yes, preach heartily to the lost as if every man could be saved because in your prayers you pray that God as the song said and I wish I could remember the whole phrase but he is the one who lifts up the mountains 
He moves mountains to save lost men. Right? Such were some of you. Even so, Paul says in Romans 6, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Sometimes, i got to tell you, some Christians live like they're still dead. Right? You ever meet a depressed Christian all the time? You have every reason, and that's one reason for the sermon too. I want to tell you, you're alive. You're more alive now than you were before you were saved. And when you die, you're more alive then. Why are we here and a preacher preaching too long? It's because you want to hear that you're alive. I preach twice a year. I reserve the right to be able to preach longer than I should. All right? Understanding who you were as an unbeliever informs you now about who you are in Christ. Go to Ephesians 4. If you want, I can just read it for you. I've got my little slip of paper in there. You, however, verse 20, 420, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your what? Former manner of life. To put off the old self, which is being corrupted by the deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Wow! You mean actually me understanding understanding the scriptures teaching on total depravity teaches me how now to live? Absolutely. That former manner of life has to give way to a new manner of life. And that's why you come to church. That's why you go to Bible studies. That's why you go to uh, small groups. That's why you get together in fellowship. That's why, that's why, that's why. That's why. Finally. I hate to tell you I have another page, but I'm skipping to the end. I can only tell you. In excitement, I could preach you another half hour or more. One thing that I can tell you with the truth is when God saves you, remember when Jesus said to his own disciples, greater works than these you shall do. You know what that greater work is in the context? Salvation. Salvation is the power of God unto salvation. That's actually what he begins the book of Romans with in the first chapter, I believe. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, neither are you when you preach to dead people. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. Why do we preach the gospel because we love to see God at work in power. There are some people here who have only been recently saved. Elorian has just been saved for, what, two or three months? Oh, my goodness. I see the power of God in here. And by the way, whenever you see, and this is Isaiah 53.1, right? Um, it literally is, uh, to who has believed our report, 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Whenever the Lord lifts his arm, he's lifting in a power to do. And you know what he lifts his arm in power to do? He lifts his arm in power to show you who he is and then to receive the worship you're willing to give back to him. And in power he saves us. He reveals his arm in salvation. And he says, now cry out to me and praise me. Give thanksgiving. Give with your money even. You think giving money in here is actually just a uh, a silly little uh, object lesson? No. You are saying to God, everything is yours. I'm willing to give you back everything because of the cost of Christ that he was willing to pay and the power to save that you manifested to me by saving me in the scriptures. And my little sister over there is saying, you're done, Todd, you're done, Todd, you're done, Todd. (laughs) So out of the mouth of babes comes praise to God. And the finishing of sermons. Let's finish in prayer. Father, we recognize now that what the Apostle Paul just did was he dug a grave. He put us in it. He threw the soil back on top of us, and he didn't put a cross. He put a stone, and on that stone it said lawbreaker, rebel, hater of God. And then Paul, starting in, I believe, verse 21, he says, Ah, but God passed over your sins, waiting for a time for his son to come and pay the penalty of your sin. What grace what the power of an omnipotent God is. Great power to save. It's a miracle that God has saved us. And let the teachers now in the next coming weeks demonstrate the beauty of God's grace to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ and in Christ it can and it must lead to humble elation